actually the leap of faith, to give it the memorable name that Soren Kierkegaard bestowed upon it, is an imposture. As he himself pointed out, it is not a leap that can be made once and for all. It is a leap that has to go on and on being performed in spite of mounting evidence to the contrary. This effort is actually too much for the human mind and leads to delusions and manias. Religion understands perfectly well that the leap is subject to sharply diminishing returns, which is why it often doesn't in fact rely on faith at all, but instead corrupts faith and insults reason. You are listening to A Leap of Doubt, the podcast that celebrates science, secular humanism, and the courage it takes to embrace an evidence-based life of doubt and questioning. Hello and welcome to A Leap of Doubt. This is your host, Nathan Dickey. At the base of the Statue of Liberty rests an engraving on a bronze tablet which reads, From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me, I lift my lamp beside the golden door. These words, penned by Jewish poet Emma Lazarus, touted America as a safe haven, welcoming immigrants fleeing war, civil unrest, and persecution from other countries. But the history of America's treatment of the poor and huddled masses tells a very different story one of hostility and exclusion toward outsiders who look to America to live up to its promise. Contrary to popular belief, the poor and huddled masses were never welcome in America. On this episode, we are discussing America's dark history of demonizing and excluding immigrants, because it's only by taking a long and hard look at our own troubled history that we can even hope to learn from our wrongdoings and correct them. Joining me as my special guest for this relevant and important discussion is Robert E. Bartholomew, one of the authors of American Intolerance, Our Dark History of Demonizing Immigrants, published by Prometheus Books in 2018. Dr. Bartholomew is an American-born medical sociologist, journalist, and human rights advocate who currently serves as a history instructor at Botany College in Auckland, New Zealand. He has written 15 books and published more than 60 articles in a number of professional journals. Welcome to the program, Dr. Bartholomew. It's an honor to have you. Thank you very much. Uh, one reason I think your book, American Intolerance, is highly instructive in the times in which we live now is because it belies a very common and widespread sentiment felt by mostly well-meaning people all over America, and that is the notion that the level of xenophobia and racism exhibited by Trump's administration is something new and unprecedented. Uh, this is often expressed in words to the effect of, this is not what America has ever been about, or uh, similar phrases like that. In the present age of modern communications and information technology, in which historical information as well as uh, information on nearly every other field of study imaginable is available to most people at the press of a button, what do you think accounts for this historical amnesia? Well, I think it's the way we are, unfortunately. I mean, a after Trump called Mexicans rapists, drug dealers, and gang members, um, I researched the American panic of the 1840s and 1850s and thought, wow, this would make a great book for a popular market, one that's thoroughly researched and easy to read. And, and that's what's going on now. I mean, American, American intolerance is about our history of foreigner panics. 
And it's remarkable how these keep repeating themselves over and over again, and we don't learn the lesson. Right now, there was a fear of migrants, uh, refugees, asylum seekers, foreigners, those who are different from us, who are seen as a threat to our society. Just like the fear of the Central American caravan of a few months ago was exaggerated, you know, with a number of illegal border crossings near all-time lows at the time, American history is filled with examples of similar exaggerated fears that turned out to be full-fledged panics, each similar to what's going on now, only worse. You know, you hear many people today saying the atmosphere of intolerance in America has, has never been this bad. It's just not true. 170 years ago, Mexicans were labeled as rapists and, and gang members. We've seen this play before. And that's the message from our book, that the current scare is just one in a long list of foreigner panics that keep on happening. And to understand today's events, you need to look back into history. I mean, during the 19th century, you had the anti-Mexican feeling in America that was so great that between 1850 and 1890, just as many Mexicans were lynched in America as African-Americans. I mean, that's a stunning figure, but it's true, and most Americans wouldn't be aware of it. Most Americans aren't aware of our long history of foreigner panics. It just keeps happening. You know, people keep saying, um, you know, I, I see this on TV all the time, you know, we're in an unusual period. No, we're not. Most of American history is the history of foreigner panics interspersed by short periods of calm. That sounds about right. Um, you mentioned uh, social panic, and uh, I'd kind of like to briefly uh, visit this concept because it kind of forms the background. Uh, is there a distinction between social panic and moral panic that's held by sociologists? No. In the book, we look at foreigner panics as moral panics. They are one and the same. These panics are driven by periods of exaggerated fear of outsiders who are wrongly viewed as a threat to our way of life. You know, they're going to take our jobs. They're going to rape our wives. They're going to leech off the welfare system, lead to the fall of our civilization. They become scapegoats for society's problems. In reality, the opposite is true. Migrants are less likely to commit crimes. Many take lower paying jobs that no one wants. They pay taxes, lowering the overall tax burden for everyone. And most acts of terrorism on U.S. soil are homegrown. And that's what we try to do in the book. We, we document these uh, episodes and um, from the Mexican scare in the 1840s and 50s, right up to the current Islamic scare, the fear of Islamic refugees and migrants. Um, and as we say, it's just the latest fear. Mm -hmm. uh, from the uh, Catholic scare in the mid-19th century all the way up to the current uh, Islamic scare, uh, religion seems to be a major motivational drive in these fears, uh, along with race. 
Do you think one or the other is uh, the greater driving motivation, or is it both in combination, especially with something like the Muslim scare, with uh, many of the immigrants from Muslim-majority countries not being categorized in this artificial construct we call race among Anglo-Saxon Americans? You know, it really boils down to the fear of the other, of people who are different. And the solution for me is education, to educate people about the history of previous panics. History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. We cannot stop social panics, moral panics, but we can familiarize ourselves with the features, learn to recognize them, and take action to reduce the impact before they spiral out of control. I mean, to, to make a required teaching in every school about the concept of the myth of race would be a good place to start. Um, because the, the myth of race is right up there with Santa Claus and the uh, Easter Bunny. You know, and I was very happy to hear you talk about that because there's an overwhelming scientific consensus that race is a mythical concept. We should do away with it and instead use the term ethnic group. And, and while it still involves a label, it's far more better than what we have now. All humans come from a single species, Homo sapiens, and we share a common genetic heritage. Outside of our superficial outer trappings, our DNA is 99.9% .9 identical. This is established science. It should be the part of every school curriculum. And I just feel it's very important. And the other solution that I have is that outlets like Fox News, which is essentially state-run media, should be forced to give equal time to alternative views near election time. When I started out as a journalist in the 1980s, we had the equal time rule. Near an election, if you interviewed one candidate, you had to give equal time to another. I think this would counter what is essentially right. a state-run propaganda news outlet. Um, and I would also like to see an organized boycott of Fox News because there's no attempt there to be fair and balanced. Fair and balanced is a trademark. Absolutely. You mentioned uh, some of the standard or repeating features that are common across all these scares. And uh, again, referring back to the Catholic scare of the mid-19th century, I was really interested in that because of the surprising parallels I see between that and the satanic panic of the 1980s and 90s. Uh, two completely opposite uh, movements Satanism being pretty much fictitious, or the notion they had of Satanism as a movement being fictitious, and Catholics, of course, being real people with a real movement. But am I correct in suspecting that certain features of both scares, for example, the fear of clandestine hotbeds of sexual perversion and ritual killing of babies, are easily transplanted from one group to the other, however different they may be? And what does that say about social panics and moral panics? Well, to me, the message is simple. The Catholic scare, just like the Mexican scare, is happening today just in a different form. During the Catholic scare from the 1830s to the 1860s, Catholics were rumored to owe their allegiance to the Pope. Their followers were believed to be part of a conspiracy to bring down the government and install a Catholic leader. They were said to have infiltrated 
all levels of government. Anti-Catholic riots broke out in several major cities in America. Catholic houses were burned. Nunneries were attacked. In 1844, 13 people died in Philadelphia alone. In 1854, when riots in St. Louis left about 10 people dead, our message here is simple. The Catholic scare, just like the Mexican scare and the German scare and the Chinese scare and the Japanese scare and the Muslim scare is happening today just in a different form. Catholics were believed to have infiltrated the government. Today, there's a fear that Obama holdovers have created a deep state to undermine President Trump. During the Red Scare of the early 50s, it was widely believed that communists had infiltrated the government and were intent on bringing it down. The same scares keep happening over and over. They are driven by fear and ignorance. The, the Red Scare of the 50s coincided with the Lavender Scare, the purge of, of thousands of homosexuals in the government over the fear that they would be blackmailed by, by communist agents. The Jewish refugee scare during World War II happened when hundreds of thousands of German Jews were denied entry into the U.S. over the unfounded fear peddled by anti-Semites that they posed a threat and they might act as spies for Hitler. Um, and of course, you got the more recent Muslim migrant refugee asylum seeker panic. I mean, it just keeps happening. And that's the most remarkable thing to me is that this rhyming of history over and over again, and we just don't learn the lesson. Another point I wanted to hit is uh, the mass internment of Japanese Americans in the wake of the bombing of Pearl Harbor, 1941. And the reason is because while unlike a number of the other immigrant panics surveyed in your book, this one is remembered and known by a large number of Americans today. Nevertheless, there are a ton of misconceptions uh, surrounding it. For one, contrary to popular belief, the Japanese-American scare and internment was not a sudden knee-jerk reaction on the part of American policymakers. Uh, what was really going on and why weren't Irish-Americans similarly targeted? Yeah, that's a really interesting uh, episode in American history. The internment of Japanese Americans after um, the attack at Pearl Harbor. Uh, you often hear uh, people saying, well, it was because of the attack and uh, we, we really needed to be cautious at this point. But look, we were at war with the Italians and Mussolini. We were at war with the Germans and Hitler. There was no mass internment of German-Americans or Italian-Americans. There was a mass internment of Japanese-Americans um, because there had been a long-standing fear and stereotyping and prejudice of Japanese-Americans uh, in the many decades leading up to that war. And I think what it really boils down to is they exemplified the other because they looked physically different than us. Yet the German-Americans and the Italian-Americans look very similar to us. And I think that's what it boils down to. What do you think uh, changed between World War I and World War II? World War I, of course, being when German-Americans were interned 
in less numbers than the Japanese Americans, but uh, in significant numbers nevertheless, and also significant harassment and hostility toward German Americans. What do you think changed? Was it more of a, a symbolic thing in World War One, and did like the rise of eugenics have anything to do with that shift where German Americans weren't targeted the same way they were during World War One? Well, I think it comes down to that German Americans blend into the rest of the population, um, unless they, they have an obvious accent, where the uh, Japanese uh, stand out. Uh, so you have this situation also at that time where the Asian horde was feared, uh, particularly Chinese and Japanese uh, Americans were feared as the other at that time. I mean, when you, when you talk about the, the German scare, it's fascinating. People with Germanic-sounding businesses, uh, Germanic-named streets and cities were given English-sounding names. I mean, families actually, and there's like a lot of families changed their names. Like Schmidt became Smith, uh, Mueller became Miller, um, and the other interesting thing is the phrase 100% American became popular uh, during that time. That parallels Trump's America first. So, you, you know, it's, it's a fascinating. Uh, all of these episodes in our history are, have fascinating uh, parallels. And once you get the fear going, it's in the stereotypes out there, it's hard to stop it to the point where in 1918, they had this popular German cartoon strip, uh, the Katzenjammer Kids, about two German brothers. It was one of the most uh, popular cartoons in the United States. Uh, it was in most major newspapers. They changed their name to the Shenanigan Kids. <laughs> um, and, and Hans and Fritz became the Dutch siblings of, um, I think it was Mike and Alec. And they didn't change it until 1920, um, just after the war. And that's another interesting parallel is soon after these scares are over, it doesn't take that long to go back to relative normality again. And it's, it's kind of like with what's going on with Trump right now, we have been hypnotized, we've been mesmerized, paralyzed by these fears. And we snap out of it. Then we go back to uh, short periods of normality again, only to plunge back into another scare with another group that gets targeted in, in society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I came to that part in your book about the German scare and the changing of names, I had to read those few paragraphs twice because I was sitting there reading about Liberty Cabbage, Liberty Burgers, and Liberty Measles. And... I just was sitting there thinking to myself, did these people even hear themselves? Like, how could they not recognize how ridiculous they were being? Yeah, and that's a good point. Um, in 1920, about 900,000 German-born Americans literally vanished uh, when, when they were doing an accounting of um, uh, with census and stuff like that by either claiming to have been born uh, in the U.S. or assuming a different ethnicity. Sauerkraut became Liberty Cabbage. Restaurants changed hamburger to Liberty Burger. Uh, Frankfurters and Wieners were named after German cities, um, became 
uh, hot dogs. German measles became Liberty measles. In Chicago, the uh, Kaiser Friedrich Mutual Aid Society, which was named after the former German emperor, became the George Washington Benevolent Aid Society. I mean, people were really um, going to extreme uh, measures. Berlin, California was renamed uh, Genereva. Um, Berlin, Iowa was renamed Lincoln, Iowa. Um, and you had this going over and over again. Um, in 1915, one in four high school students studied German. By the end of the war, it was just 1%. Um, Germans were demonized as um, evil and warlike, which created problems for scholars who had previously written that the early American pioneers were descendant of ancient Germanic tribes. So this was a real problem. History was rewritten to include the theory that most of the original inhabitants of Germany had been linked uh, and, and killed off by the Asians. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating how when these scares are going and they're at their height, how fear changes society. Um, there was a fear that German musicians were passing secret messages in their arrangements. Uh, German submarine captains were surfacing in remote locations along the coast and supposedly coming ashore to attend the theater to spread the flu. Germans were demonized as an evil, warlike race. And, you know, rumors um, that were spread were unbelievable. In early 1915, there was a rumor that 80,000 German loyalists were secretly drilling near Buffalo and Niagara Falls, New York, for an invasion. Um, that was spread by a British diplomat. And, you know, something that you would think of ridiculous now, back then had real um, significance and held weight just because of the fear. And that's what it is. It's fear that drives these scares. Mm -hmm. uh, it may not be uh, as astounding or surprising anymore. I mean, with the rise of Trump, we're seeing more and more nonsense being emboldened in the popular press that people were not emboldened to believe or espouse even less than a decade ago. In kind of wrapping up, I, I want to uh, mention to my listeners that at the time of this recording, it is Mother's Day in the U.S., and in keeping with what we're talking about and trying to remember, trying to learn from, there are Syrian refugee families who are torn apart. There are children who are separated from their mothers and their fathers by an administration that has literally caged them. This is part of the reason why we're talking about this, because as Dr. Bartholomew has mentioned, we need to uh, know and understand and learn from our history, however uncomfortable, in order to change. Do you see any reason for being optimistic about the educational prospects, e even in the face of all of this mass hysteria about Mexicans and Muslims and all of the uh, reasons for kind of losing hope that any of us will ever snap out of it and actually change this vicious cycle? Do you see any reason to be encouraged or optimistic? Well, I think that human beings are part of this human condition whereby we're wired to have these scares happen. It's the way we are, and we need to educate ourselves. 
with some of the stunning facts of history. I mean, one to me that floored me when I researched this book was that in the spring of 1939, there was a bill in Congress to allow 20,000 children to escape Nazi Germany and migrate to the U.S. These involved children under 14. You know, Hitler used to, and Goebbels used to, give talks and joke that, and this was in 1938-1939, that, you know, nobody wants the Jews. We'll let these kids go if anybody wants them. The United States government rejected the possibility of taking 20,000 children in who were under the age of 14. And the reason was anti-Semitism. You know, they were giving all sorts of reasons to try to rationalize it, like they're going to eventually take jobs, things like this. Uh, one uh, senator, Ohio, Senator Robert Taft, complained that the government would be a party to breaking up Jewish families. Uh, he concluded that they'd be better off in Germany, um, which is unbelievable. And the other important message here is that, you know, you just have to come out with education and keep coming out with the facts. The Muslim scare in particular, because that's what's going on right now. Um, each year, about 20 people in America are killed by cows. They're squashed by cows. They fall on them. They're kicked by cows. Dozens die from accidents involving lawnmowers. Last year, about 5,000 people choked to death. There is more of a threat to the average American from a chicken salad sandwich than there is from a terrorist. An average of one American dies each year from encounters with sharks, which is 20 times less than cows. Yet few people lie awake at night worrying about cow attacks. You know, and the, the evidence with Muslim terrorists, I mean, it's very clear. Um, a recent study of all terrorist incidents by foreign governments on U.S. soil found that the odds of dying in any given year were three and a half million to one, and that includes the 2,983 people who perished in the September 11th attacks of 2001. The threat posed by refugees is astronomically lower. I mean, there's over three and a half billion to one odds, according to the uh, Cato Institute report that came out. Over a recent 40-year period, out of 3.2 million refugees admitted to the U.S., only 20 were classified as terrorists. Of these, just three were responsible for murders. None were Muslims. Each case took place during the 1970s and were Cubans assassinating politicians or dissidents who were living in exile. And then you get people like Mike Huckabee who comes out and, and he was saying things like, oh, we can't take Syrian refugees. They would completely disrupt our society. And I've got a quote here. He said, can you imagine bringing in a bunch of Syrian refugees who've lived in a desert area their whole lives that are suddenly thrown into an English-speaking community where maybe it's in Minnesota and it's 20 degrees below zero. I just don't understand it. What were we possibly thinking? I mean, while resettlement would undoubtedly disrupt their lives, what about the onset of suicide bombings, airstrikes, kidnappings, rape, torture, beheadings that they were forced to endure in Syria? 
Um, if climate is a concern, why not resettle them in one of the warmer southern states or the American desert? It's just an artificial, superficial way of claiming that we don't want these people here. Because yes, if they were Christians, they would take them in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. It's unimaginably short-sighted. And it reveals the level of privilege and luxury that we live in that we can even conceive of asking the question, what about the climate or what about uh, any of these other trivial matters that we're using as excuses? Dr. Bartholomew, thank you so much for spending this time with me and, and my listeners. Yeah, look, thank you very much for having me. Um, the message here is that we can change. You know, the uh, all those people, I always tell my students that you give me a six-month-old baby, and I will give you an A student and an upstanding citizen, or I'll give you the best little Nazi that you ever saw. Because human beings can be programmed through education to be good, upstanding citizens, or it can go the other way. So we are very malleable as a species and as a society. We can change, and change begins with education. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to A Leap of Doubt. If you liked what you heard, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. If you want to get involved in the kinds of discussion this show is meant to encourage, you can find the official discussion group on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash a leap of doubt you can follow me and get in touch with me on twitter where my username is at the atheist feedback and criticisms are always welcome the opening clip is an excerpt from the audiobook god is not great by christopher hitchens courtesy of hachette audio text copyright 2007 by christopher hitchens audio production copyright 2007 hachette audio used with permission the opening and ending music is Jade by Esther Nicholson and is used under license. If you enjoy the work I do, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon at patreon.com slash a leap of doubt.